Well, why don't you turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 9. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and the engaged Mike Soans, who's looking very fit these days. I put him on a pers my personal fitness program that I've been working on. Um, he's been doing that every single day and he's looking great. It's really paying off for both of us. <laughs> for, must be, I don't know why they're laughing at you, Mike, <laughs> but they are. Second Chronicles chapter 9, if you need a paper Bible, raise your hand. If you have a magical telephone Bible, please touch your way there. Second Chronicles chapter 9. Oh my. We have all the best singers over here, so I'm not sure how the CCS choir is going to get by tonight without you guys, but we'll have to pray for them. Second Chronicles chapter 9. If you're taking notes, uh, uh, i.e., if you are a Christian, just kidding. No, if you're a serious Christian, like, you know, the one that takes notes during Bible studies expecting God to actually speak to your heart and you actually want to remember it, you know, a real Christian, uh, the title for tonight's Bible study is Greater Than. I know that's a fragmented sentence. I'm not an idiot. All right, we're going to get there. Greater than, 2 Chronicles chapter 9, being verses 1 through 12, all right? All of us, by definition, by being weak humans made of dust, need God's help. We really do need God's help. God wants to help us, but if God is going to help us, God needs to be seen as greater than everything else that we go through in life every other possible distraction, every other possible source of help, God needs to be greater than that in our lives. We need to be willing to leave our comfortable carnal nature, just means our selfish self. We need to be willing to walk away from that to serve God and walk with Him in the Spirit. Every time we walk away from ourself and our selfishness and we walk towards God, we find something better in Him. Let me tell you a story I don't think I've told you before, uh, maybe I have, about Shannon. When Shannon and I first got married, it was a few weeks after marriage, and people when we were recording, and I was sending Shannon flowers like twice a week, they're like, he's not going to do romantic stuff for you once, he's mar once you're married, you know? And she's like, well, that's encouraging, thanks. And so I was like, man, I haven't. <laughs> they were right. I've got to do something romantic. So it's a Sunday afternoon. We're exhausted after a full day of serving the Lord here and everything, and we're, we're taking a nap, and I couldn't sleep. I'm like, I'm going to be romantic instead of sleeping romantic, you know? And so, all right. So I found a castle. I found a castle in New Jersey, the New Jersey Botanical Gardens. Boys, take notes. The New Jersey Botanical Gardens has a castle, all right? And so, uh, don't take notes on this next part, but so I was able to get a room at the castle. You can't do that, <laughs> all right? And so I reserved a room there, and I'm like, this is pretty romantic. We're going to a castle. So I go over to Shannon. She's sleeping, and I start whispering to her. I'm like touching her hair and stuff, I'm trying to be all romantic, you know? It's pretty obvious. You knew this is who the guy I am. And so I'm like, hey, sweet. You're my princess. You know, you're my princess, right? She's like, she's exhausted. She's like, uh, oh, yeah, thanks. And I'm like, because you are, you're my princess. She's like, oh, my gosh, what creeper did I marry, you know? I wouldn't stop whispering to her, and then I was like, she's like, okay, I'm, I'm sleeping. I'm like, well, every princess deserves a castle. Every princess deserves a castle. And she's like, oh, my. And she is starting to hate me. Finally, she's like, okay, I'm sleeping. I'm your princess. I deserve a castle. I'm sleeping. All right? And I'm like, no, really. I got you a castle. Let's go. You know? And 
And she was excited. You know, we went, into the, we went to this beautiful botanical gardens. It's gorgeous. There's this full-on castle, like replica, not like Legos, like real stones. Looks like a medieval kind of a castle. And we stayed there, and they upgraded us to, like, a really nice room. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful place. And it was awesome. And I'm pretty sure it was romantic. It was romantic, right? Fast forward two months ago. Abigail. Abigail, you're my princess. <laughs> Shannon's like, oh no, Abigail. So I build Abigail a prince, I build her a princess castle out of couch cushions and sheets. A, a boy would call it a fort, right? I build her this castle, put all I put her little princess chair in there, and there's light like fake candles and all the stuff. And I bring her out of the room and I'm like, Abigail, it's your castle. And she's like, Aah! you know? She runs inside and she doesn't want to leave which is great for the first 30 minutes. And then it's dinner time, and I'm like, all right, come out of the castle, it's dinner time. She's like, you know? And then she wouldn't leave. She wanted to pull us inside of the castle, but she didn't want to go out of the castle. And I'm like, well, this is a problem. You try and disassemble the castle, she cries. And so what do I do? I have to tempt her out of the castle with something greater than a castle. Not easy to do, but I had some bubbles. So I started blowing bubbles outside of the castle, and sure enough, she's like, this is awesome! She runs out of the castle, I snatch her up, it was a trick, put her in the high chair, she hated me. What's the point of the story? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Castles are awesome, that's really great. It took something better than a castle to get her out of the castle. We're going to look at a passage tonight about a woman in her castle, the Queen of Sheba, Imagine, just like this lady was, being perfectly content with your riches, perfectly content with the glory of your own kingdom. You think you have it made, you think you have the most glorious kingdom in all the earth, until you hear about a more glorious kingdom. A kingdom that's richer than mine, a kingdom that's more beautiful than mine, you know, a king that's wiser than me. This, this cannot be. Eventually it drove her crazy. I'm guessing. And so she said, I've got to figure out if this is true or not. And so she got on the road and journeyed towards this kingdom to decide, is this true or not? Tonight, I want you to apply the story of the Queen of Sheba leaving her kingdom to go and see Solomon's kingdom by analogy to your own castle, your own kingdom. And when I say your own castle, your own kingdom, what I mean is that comfort zone that you have that you don't want to leave. The Queen of Sheba had no reason to leave her kingdom until she realized there might be something better outside of her kingdom, bubbles. Now, she needed more than, more than bubbles, and she heard about Solomon's kingdom. We've got ideas about life that we're comfortable with. We say, man, this is how I want to live life, but they're not greater than God's plan for your life. We think we're living God's plan for your life because you go to youth group, you got a Bible. That doesn't mean you're living God's plan for your life. There might be something greater that he has for you that you're not partaking of yet. And so you might say, oh, I'll share my faith with my family, but I'm, I'm not going to share my faith with strangers. I'll talk about God online, but I'm not going to talk about God in person because you've got your comfort zone that you're unwilling to leave, but you're missing out on something greater, the joy of, of being bold for the Lord by sharing your faith. And maybe God can use me in a small group setting, but not on a stage. You know, I've tried to stop sinning, but I can't, so I'm just going to live with this habit. And you're comfortable, and you're like, okay, well, I got a good thing going on here. I sin a little bit, I ask for forgiveness, I feel better, and then I start this cycle all over again. Maybe God wants to give you complete victory on that. God may be calling you to the mission field, and you think, not possible for me, I'm, you know, I, it's just not going to be me, it's going to be somebody else. 
but it's our comfort zone that we have to leave. So as we go through the study tonight, I want you to think, what is it going to take for you to leave your kingdom, your comfort zone, your kind of, to be honest, your selfish idea of what life should be like that might not be God's idea? If you found a greater kingdom, if you found something greater than what you were doing, what obstacles would you overcome to get there? We're going to follow this queen in her journey in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 1, where it says, Now the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon. She came to Jerusalem to test Solomon with hard questions, having a very great retinue of camels that bore spices, golden abundance, and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was on her heart. And so she heard about his fame. She came to see him to test him to see if this really was true. Is he really the wisest man like people are talking about? How did she come? She came a long distance. We don't know the exact distance she traveled because Sheba isn't really somewhere we can definitely say, you know, we, we know where it is on a map. Jerusalem, we know where that is. That city has always been in that one location. But Sheba, we, we, there's guesses. We just know it was a long distance wherever she came from. And she was given an audience with the king. And so, in verse 2, it says, Solomon answered all of her questions, and there was nothing so difficult for Solomon that he could not explain it to her. And so Solomon passes the wisdom test. She's given him all these questions saying, well, I bet you can't answer this. This is troubling my heart. What do you have to say about that? Give me advice on this subject. Why does God allow this to happen? And every question that she wanted to ask, God answered. Can you imagine that? I mean, we have so many questions in life about why God allows certain things to happen, why certain things are the way that they are. Can you imagine talking with someone and a few hours later saying, that, that's it. Those are all of my questions in life, and they've been answered. Solomon is a great king with great wisdom. And in verse 3, we see that she's overwhelmed by the glory of his kingdom. And it says, when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, and the service of his waiters, their apparel, his cupbearers, his... his um, and their apparel, his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her at all. When she saw the greatness of Solomon and his kingdom, she was in shock. She was overwhelmed. It was even greater than her kingdom. The reports were true. And so she declares that it was a true report in verse 5. She said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I didn't believe their words until I came and saw with my own eyes, and indeed half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told me. You exceed the fame of which I have heard. Happy are your men, and happy are those servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you, setting you on his throne to be king for the Lord your God, because your God has loved Israel to establish them forever. Therefore, he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness." And so she saw it personally and believed it. Even half of what she was told wasn't true. Solomon was even greater than the legends about his greatness. And so she says, man, people must just be happy to serve you. Just to be one of your waiters must make them happy to be in your presence, in the presence of your wisdom. It's because God loved Israel that he made you king. And so she compliments him and says this was a true report. And because it was true, she decides to offer Solomon a gift in verse 9. She gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great abundance, and precious stones. There were never any such spices as those that the queen of Sheba gave to the king Solomon. And so she gives her her gift, you know, because he answered all of her questions. 
because it was something that kings and queens just did when they visited each other to kind of show off what they could bring and what they could give. And if you skip ahead to verse 12, Solomon responds. It says, Now King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked, much more than she had brought to the king. So she turned back and went to her own country, she and her servants. And so why is this included in the canon of scriptures? Why does God allow this to be preserved for us to read today? I believe it's a few reasons, but the main one is that God wanted to show Israel that this is the type of blessing they could expect if they continued to follow God and if their king continued to follow God. God wanted to bless Israel so much that all the other nations would look at their petty wealth and say, man, what's different about Israel? Their God is different. Every nation that would try and come against Solomon and and battle against this kingdom would lose, and then people would begin to think, well, why is my God losing to that God? And eventually they'd get the picture because of God blessing Israel that this is the true God, and God is the reason for the blessing, and they would be a lighthouse for the whole world, and people would turn to them. That was part of God's plan. So that's one reason why this is in the canon, showing us the height of Israel's kingdom, the height of the glory that they could have if they trusted in God. But how does this story relate to Christ is always an important question that we should be asking, because Jesus himself said that the volume of the book is written about him. Well, fortunately, Jesus himself tells us how this connects to him. So keep your finger, if you have a paper copy of the Bible, in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, because we're going to flip back to it in a couple seconds. But turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is rebuking the people because of their lack of faith in him. And he's beginning to give them examples of how ridiculous it really is that they're not believing in him. One example involves the Queen of Sheba. And in Matthew 12, 42, Jesus says, The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. A greater than Solomon. How is Solomon great? You know, great? Well, we talked about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 9. Solomon was great. He had riches. He had power. He, you know, he had wisdom. He had it all right? Solomon is great. Jesus is greater than Solomon. And so the point is, this lady came and traveled so far to hear Solomon, and yet Jesus is standing right in front of these people, and they're not going to listen. And then you can fast forward that to our generation and say, you've got your own copy of the Bible about Jesus, and you don't read it? He's greater than Solomon, and you're not reading it? He's greater than anything else in your life, and you're not reading it? A greater than Solomon is here, and so the queen of the south is going to rise up in judgment and say, I don't, I don't know what you, your guy's problem is. I came to travel for Solomon, and you guys aren't willing to do that for Jesus. How is Jesus greater than Solomon? You can think back or turn back to 2 Chronicles chapter 9, and we're just going to go through these verses quickly, starting in verse 3, uh, and just skim through it as I talk. We'll talk about the greatness of Solomon and compare it to the greatness of Jesus, our king. In verse 3, she was impressed with the wisdom of Solomon. Every question she asked, God answered. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Which is greater? The wisdom of Solomon, that's pretty impressive, or being the wisdom of God in itself? She was impressed with the house that he built in verse 3. Jesus built a spiritual house 
with hundreds of millions of believers in it, which is greater? To say, oh, look, I built a house. It's got stone, it's got wood, and Jesus, Jesus instead built a spiritual house. Hundreds of millions of believers comprised a spiritual house that Jesus has built, which is greater. She was impressed with the food on his table in verse 3. Jesus offers himself as the living bread, which is greater. She was impressed with his servants. Jesus taught that true greatness is to serve. She was impressed with his entryway to the temple. Wow, that is a nice way to get to the house of the Lord. Jesus is the entryway. Like, come on. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the ladder from, from earth to heaven, which is greater. She had to see it to believe it. She thought it was mere legend until she showed up and saw it. Jesus gets belief by those who have never seen him. She didn't hear about half the greatness of Solomon. She's like, man, there's even more that meets the eye. You know, this, there's, there's even more than, than I heard about. The Bible says in John 21, the books required to write of all that Jesus did would fill the entire earth, speaking in hyperbole, but still showing that Jesus is greater. She declares how his servants must be very happy to serve him in verse 7. In Jesus' presence is fullness of joy. They're happy to serve, but who's really happy to serve, right? I mean, but they are, they're happy to serve. They're glad to at least have this job and to be around Solomon, but there's fullness of joy in Jesus' presence. God set Solomon on the throne for the love of Israel. That's why God loved Israel so much he gave them a good king. God sets Jesus on the throne for the love of the whole world. And Solomon gave her material gifts, but Jesus gave spiritual gifts when he ascended after his resurrection, which is greater. And so which king is greater? These passages remind us that by comparison, Jesus is much greater than even the greatest king that has ever lived, Solomon. But the comparison goes way beyond the life of Solomon. You can look at the life of Solomon, make some comparisons, and be like, man, Solomon was great, but Jesus is better. She saw greatness in the material things. Jesus shows his greatness in the spiritual. The spiritual is greater than the material. Now, this is something that we maybe think we understand, but we really don't. If we really understood that the spiritual, the unseen things, are greater than the seen things, our lives would be entirely different. But we don't believe that. If we believe that, then we wouldn't really care about money, about clothing as much, about, you know, a nice car, those things. We wouldn't care about them as much as we would the Word of God and spiritual gifts. The spiritual is greater, and I, I think I can prove that to you. Psalm 49, verse 6, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you, says this. Those who trust in their wealth, which is a material blessing, and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly. Congratulations, you've got a lot of money. It doesn't buy you a ticket to heaven. So which is greater? The spiritual blessing is greater than the material blessing. And so let's take a few minutes to continue to explore the idea of how Jesus is greater, but separate from Solomon. We're going to look at seven greater than verses that we see in the Bible. Now, if you were to do a search on like BibleGateway.com or BlueLetterBible.com or whatever your favorite internet Bible site is or whatever app you use, if you were to do a search in, in quotes for greater than, you'd find a bunch of verses. These seven are the verses that talk about Jesus. There's greater than verses that talk about, you know, God in general, but, but these seven talk about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. And so they really give us a good clue on how Jesus is greater than something. 
And this is all separate from, from Solomon's life. He's greater than all obstacles and all problems. The first, if you want to turn there, is John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 12. John chapter 4, verse 12 says, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus is greater than this world's water, you could say. Jesus is greater than the, the most satisfying thing you can find on earth is what he's trying to tell this woman at the well. You know, th this lady didn't understand. She's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? It's water. Are you greater you know, than these people that you would say that? Are you, are you greater than that? No. But Jesus would say that you drink of this water again and you're going to thirst again. You drink of the water that I give you and you will never thirst again. And that water is a picture of the best satisfaction that this world has to offer. You know, Jesus, you know, this world wants to offer us some satisfaction, but it's always temporary. It's always fleeting. It's vanity. It's meaningless. It's nothing compared to what God wants to offer us. The temptations of this world, you know, still have a hold on us sometimes. We find ourselves wanting to become addicted to television, to music, to, to different things this world has to offer. And the Bible says there's a passing pleasure to sin, but that water will always make you thirsty again. But what Jesus has to give you, well, he is greater than that. And so with each of these seven greater than verses, I want to give you a name of Christ, a name of Jesus that I think helps us to remind ourselves to overcome this temptation or what the, maybe the world has to offer. So for this one that in John 4.12, that Jesus is greater than this world's water, the verses in John 4.14 Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the living water. What a great name of Christ, that he is the living water. He is the one that will always quench our thirst. I mean, all of us at some point, you know, have had those moments where, and I hope you don't do this, but I know you do, but I hope you don't. I hope it's just your friends and you can honestly just chuckle and think about it being your friends and not you. But if it's you, just stop it. You know, when you put on Facebook, I'm bored, hit me up. I'm bored. Does anyone want to do anything? I'm bored. Can someone just chat with me? I'm bored. And you're like, oh my goodness. You're a Christian for goodness sake. What do you have to be bored about? I would go as far to say that boredom is a sin. And I believe that. And the first time you hear that, you're like, that's ridiculous. No, you're ridiculous. You know, you're a Christian. You are born again. You've got an ability to talk with God now, to communicate with him. And his message is to you, hey, you know that world around you that you see that you're ignoring, that you just want to kind of hang out with? That's a dying world that's going to hell, and I love them, and I died for them. I need you to be a part of reaching out to them and sharing my love with them. And if you don't, they're going to die, and that breaks my heart. The Bible says that God is willing that none should perish. The death of the wicked doesn't bring any pleasure to God. So what are you bored with? If your entire family, if your entire family is saved and every single friend that you know is saved, then you still shouldn't be bored. There's still plenty that you can do. Leave your area. Great, congratulations. You're the only person that knows everyone that's saved. Go somewhere else. There's plenty of places where that's not true. But if it is, you know, isn't true, and you know people that you love that don't know the Lord, what is more important? Figuring out what to do on Saturday, saying, I'm bored, I want someone to entertain me or resisting that temptation of the enemy and saying, what does God want me to do sacrificially today to share his love with a dying world? There's absolutely no reason. Jesus is the living water. That is what is going to quench you, not this world's water. The second greater than verse is Matthew 12, 41. 
Matthew 12, 41. In a sense, Jesus is greater than any preacher. And that's good. Matthew 12, 41 says this, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is greater than any preacher out there. And that's all. Jonah was a horrible preacher. Do you know anything about Jonah? Jonah was horrible. Jesus is, you know, God is like, hey, Jonah, I want you to go and share my love with this, with this city. And he's like, no, you're out of your mind. It's not happening. He did everything he could to get away from Nineveh. He hated the Ninevites. Even when he went there and finally was forced to preach because he's, you know, all acidic inside of the belly of a fish and got spit out, you know, and is intimidated by God. Finally, when he actually goes and preaches, he's like, 40 days, you're all going to die. <laughs> And I'm going to love it. And he's walking around just preaching this simple, horrible message. Which of you will succeed going, standing in front of your friend saying, in 40 days you will die. Believe in the Lord. It doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, it's like the worst messenger ever. He hates the people he's preaching at. It hates them. Even after he got done preaching and they start repenting, he's like, oh, come on. No, no. No, it's working. No. And he sat there outside of the city saying, well, maybe God will change his mind. Maybe God really will kill them all. I'm going to watch. Yeah, maybe God will kill them all. And he cared more about a plant than 120,000 kids that were so young, they didn't know what their left hand or their right hand was. They didn't know the difference yet. He'd rather 120,000 little kids who don't know their right or left hand yet, that's how young they are, die because he hated them so much. This is the worst preacher ever. But you know what? God is greater than any preacher. And the Ninevites received this message from an angry preacher and still changed their lives. And you know what? There's going to be plenty of times in your life where you don't have good preachers. You're blessed to be at a church that just teaches through the scriptures verse by verse and, and I think does it in a pretty exciting way. That's not always going to be the case. You know, you might end up moving in the middle of nowhere or whatever and, and you're sitting there at a church. You're at a conference ex all excited it's going to be great and you're sitting there and you're like, oh my goodness, this is horrible. You know what you need to do? You need to not zone out. Because Jesus is greater than any preacher. You need to man up or woman up, you know, and you need to sit there and say, you know what, the Holy Spirit can still speak to me now. The Word of God is still open right now. Focus, take some notes and say, God, speak to me. This guy's horrible. <laughs> Please speak to me. And you'll find that Jesus is greater than any preacher, whether he's boring or not. You might have a preacher or a minister come to you and rebuke you harshly, and you're like, that's not how a Christian should rebuke somebody. It should be in love. It's the kindness of God that leads me to repentance. You know what? Jesus is greater than that minister and his mistake that he's made. You're going to have people, you know, that, that, you know, have been over you in the church that are leaders that are, that are going to stumble and fall and, and move into sin, and you're going to try and be tempted to use that as an excuse for you to go into sin, but Jesus is greater than any preacher. And he's worth overcoming all of those obstacles. And the name of Jesus that reminds me that he's greater than any preacher is in Revelation 19, 13. Jesus is the word of God. That is an awesome name. <laughs> Jesus is your Bible. Jesus is the word of God, right? He's a mouthpiece of God himself. And so you seek him despite any of those obstacles. The next verse is John 13, 16, where we see that Jesus is greater than our idea of service. It says, most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than him who, who sent him. 
You know, and, and there's certain times where you're supposed to be serving, whether it's doing chores at home or whether it's serving at the church or doing personal ministry, where you're going to have a misconception of what service really is. And you're going to say, man, I said I was ready to serve. I, I signed up for Bridgefest. I signed up for VBS. I thought they'd give me a classroom. I thought they'd give me a teaching opportunity. And all they're having me do is like the sign-in, the welcome tent. All I'm doing is sweeping up the trash outside instead of really saying, you're going to think a job is below you. But remember John chapter 13 that Jesus took the lowest job. Whatever the lowest job is, which I usually believe is cleaning up throw up, just so you know. Because we don't really gird our loins and wash people's feet. You know, can you imagine just rubbing somebody's feet being like, I got this. I got this. It's okay. You know, you're like, you're tickling me. Stop it. You're creeping me out. You know, it's not really that anymore. But throw up is that. Throw up, that's what it is. You know, you're on a retreat, some, you know. And everyone, normally, what do they do? They scatter. You scatter, say, Ugh! But instead, you scatter and grab a bucket and some water, and you clean it up. Why? Because it's so disgusting, you wouldn't want anybody else to have to go through that yourself. You're like, oh, why would... But no, it's disgusting. Exactly. Like washing feet, like Jesus did. And, and, you know, a servant is not greater than his master. Jesus did the worst job. Why would we ever complain about the jobs that were given? You know, why would we ever do that? Our idea of service is wrong sometimes, to be honest. And we need to realize that being a servant is, you know, being treated like a servant. It's being available to do anything with the right motives, not who's watching or how big of a, a job it really is. The name of Christ that reminds me of this is Revelation 3.14. Jesus is the ruler of God's creation. The ruler of God's creation. If Jesus is the ruler of God's creation and he washed dirty feet, then there's nothing that I should be complaining about at all. I should just be glad to serve him. The fourth greater than verse we're looking at is 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, where we see that Jesus is greater than our guilt. Thank God, because we sure can be guilty, because we're all going to mess up here on earth, but Jesus is greater than that. 1 John 3.20 says, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. You might think, like, I can't serve God with my past, with the mistakes that I've made. I can't serve God with the, you know, the stupid things I do each week. You know, I made this one mistake, and, man, every time I think about serving God, Satan puts this thought in my mind. And you might not even know it's Satan just saying, like, how dare you try and serve God? How dare you try and talk about Christ, you hypocrite? Right, and we start feeling guilty over our sins. But Jesus is greater than our heart. If you've confessed that sin in sincerity to God, then he has taken it and thrown it as far as the east is from the west, which is an infinity kind of an amount. He's buried it in the deepest ocean, and the Hebrews were afraid of the seas, we see from, you know, from that time period. He didn't want you to go after it. He doesn't want you to go looking for it. You know, it doesn't erase it from history, but erases it from the record that God holds against us. It's erased from that with forgiveness. And so God is greater than our guilt. And so if you feel condemned by the enemy, you need to realize that Jesus is greater than that. The name of Christ that reminds me of that in 1 Timothy 2.5 is that Jesus is our one mediator. He's our mediator. It's not Satan. It's not our thoughts. It's not our best ideas of how good we are, how not good we are. Jesus was absolutely perfect. His righteousness is credited to our account. And so God sees us as righteous in a sense. And so he is our mediator. He is the one we need to trust with whether we are good enough or not. Well, he was good enough and righteousness was accredited to us. 
And the fifth verse we're looking at is Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. Matthew 12, 6. Jesus is greater than our, our perceptions of God. Matthew 12, 6 says, I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. There's one greater than the temple. And so Jesus is, is telling them a story about, you know, how legalism is wrong. And the Pharisees' interpretation of the law is wrong. And, and he's talking to them about, you know, the Sabbath. And, you know, why do your disciples, you know, pick the grain, you know, pick the grains and eat them on the Sabbath when they shouldn't be touching any of that? And Jesus says, haven't you heard about David? Don't you remember David when he ate the bread that was reserved for the priests? He wasn't supposed to do that. That bread was reserved for the priest, but he was hungry. He was starving. He needed the bread, and the priest gave it to him because life is more important than saying, no, I'm sorry, you're going to have to die right in front of me because of our rule. I'm sorry. This, I'm actually really full as the priest. I don't need this bread. I, you're just going to have to die because of that rule. You know, it's like, you know, it was okay that he ate the bread, Jesus said. You know, it was okay. The priests authorized that. The priest said, hey, that's, that's okay with me. You know, the priest serving in the temple, and think about the holiness of that whole thing, and Jesus says, I'm greater than the temple. I'm greater than your understanding of the Sabbath. I'm greater than your misinterpretation of the law. And these poor Jews were probably so confused because of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the way that they taught the scriptures. You know, and Jesus said, hey, what they say is right, but don't, don't live the way that they live. Don't listen to their traditions. And he challenged them on that. And so, I mean, Jesus is greater than our perception of God. There are going to be times as you're choosing churches and figuring out where do you go to church with your family and, you know, what campus ministry should you be involved in and, you know, what, uh, you know, Christian authors are good to podcast and to read that you're going to hear misperceptions about God. And you need to realize that you need to push through that and find who God truly is because he is greater than all of those. The, the thought that comes to mind for Jesus' name is that Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. I mean, God being with us, the relationship that we can have with God is greater than anyone's thought of legalism uh, that you could ever imagine. And then six, just two more here. Jesus is greater than our enemy. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. 1 John 4, 4. It says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is a great verse to memorize. It's not too long. You would do well to memorize it. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so, you know, there are times where Satan is going to try and sideline you. He's going to try and put you on the shelf. You know, I'm not talking about like some people stub their toe. They're walking along and they stub their toe and they're like, oh no, Satan's here. Satan's here. Run! Satan. Satan is in that stone. Well, why did he, he really chose a boring place to exist today, didn't he? A stone? The snake was much cooler. Some people think that Satan's everywhere, you know, the light power goes out, oh, Satan, you know, and you need to find a balance. The people that think Satan is everywhere, he's not omniscient. I'm sorry, he's not the opposite of God. He's a created being, he's got some strengths, mostly ugly, but he can't be everywhere at all times, and so every time something bad happens to you, don't whisper, Satan. You'd be a lot smarter at least whisper, demons. <laughs> There's a lot more of them. That could be around. Odds are Satan's probably dealing with somebody cooler like Alan Kahn or something, you know. So you got to watch out for that extreme. But the other wrong extreme is, is thinking that Satan's never involved. Oh, there's no such thing as spiritual warfare. Bad things just happen. There's a middle ground. 
There's a middle ground. And God says that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Even our enemy isn't great enough. The Bible says that one time at the end of the age, that one time we're going to see Satan. You know, we're going we're to see him released and we're going to be like, are you kidding me? This is the troubler of the world? This? And Michael, the archangel, is about to throw him into the lake of fire. And I'm like, I, my grandma's got this. Grandma, come grab Satan, throw him in the lake of fire. And she's like, I got this. You know, boom! You know, and Satan's like, a grandma threw him in the lake of fire? That is, the, that is just wrong, right? And it's like, why waste Michael, the archangel's strength? He's pretty cool. You know, you let grandma do it. We're going to look at him and be like, this is the guy, this is the punk, right? Now, he's good at what he does. He deceives us, but God is greater than that. And God is able to give us victory against our enemy. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 tells us a name of Christ that reminds us that Jesus is greater than our enemy. And it's that Jesus is our protection. Jesus is our protection. He's greater than he who is in the world. And the final greater than verse we're going to look at is in John chapter 8 verse 53. John 8.53. Jesus is greater than even death. It says, are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus at that moment basically said that he was around in Abraham's time and, you know, that he, that he is God is what he ends up saying. I am, you know, I am that I am and, and calls himself God. Now, you know, there, there are times where you think about, man, could I be like one of those martyrs that I, that I read about? You know, that I've heard about in the persecuted church where they're willing to die for their faith. Have you guys ever maybe seen on, on a TV or maybe you've heard about it, seen it on Facebook, there's this guy named Saeed who's in prison in Iran. Has anybody heard about him? That'd be worth even looking at. This is just a solid brother in the Lord that's Iranian, but he also is American. He lives in, I think it's Ohio or Ohio or, no, it's not, it's one of those weird ones like Ohio, India. Idaho. It's Ohio or Idaho or one of those other weird ones, but not Indiana. Anyway, he lives there. So he's a full-on American citizen, right? And so he goes over there and is just sharing his faith with people. They arrest him, throw him in prison for eight years for what he's doing, you know, and, and charging him with all this kind of nonsense. And he's in there for eight years. They're torturing him. They've given him opportunities to recant of his faith there's, there's potential for death all the time. We actually have his, uh, I think it's his niece, sister. Oh, yeah, it's his sister, actually attended our campus. Her name's Zizi, and she attended our campus this semester in California. And his wife actually came to pick her up at the end of the semester and spoke at our, you know, spoke at our morning chapel. And it was amazing to hear this woman who knows that her husband could die at any time. He's being tortured for his faith. And yet this guy, when he, he writes letters, he sneaks out letters once in a while to get to his wife. You read these letters, it sounds like the Apostle Paul writing from prison. It's amazing. It's like another epistle because the suffering has purified him so much. And it's just, he's just writing beautiful oracles of God, basically. It's awesome. 30 people have come to know the Lord in that prison. They're keeping it quiet, obviously. They're not going around boasting, saying, I'm a Christian now because maybe of their fear. But 30 people have given their lives to the Lord. Now we think, well, what would I do in that situation? He's given opportunities each week to deny his faith, and they say he'll be let go free, right? And he chooses not to. Instead, allows himself to get beat. What do we have to be scared of? Why do we fear someone who can just kill us, the Bible says? We should fear him who can take the soul and cast it into hell, meaning we should fear God. We may be scared to die for the gospel's sake, but Jesus, and I love this name of Christ in Acts 3.15, Jesus is the author of life. 
Jesus is the author of life. There's been a, a time appointed for all of us to die, whether it's by an accident, which doesn't really exist because God has appointed us to die in that situation, or whether it's living to be 100 years old. Whatever it is, Jesus has appointed that time for each of you. You are absolutely invincible until that time. Now, if you want to go out and be an idiot and try and test that theory and say, I'm invincible, huh? And you want to jump off a building? That was your appointed time to die. I thought I was invincible. You were up until you were an idiot. You know, and so I'm not talking about using it like that. I'm, I'm saying, think about it. Who, who can take our lives but the Lord? There are no accidents. God knows exactly when. There's a student at the Bible college whose brother all of a sudden was 26 years old standing in the front of his house. He's a former Bible college student. And about two weeks ago, all of a sudden he was just found on the ground. His heart had just stopped completely. They had to shock him four times just to get, his, to get him alive in the hospital. He's been in a coma ever since. And three days ago, they finally pulled the plug on him. It was heartbreaking, you know, dealing with the student and the student body and, and, and dealing with all the emotions. Saying a 26-year-old, all of a sudden his heart just stops. No, no conditions known at all before that. You know, but death doesn't have to make us afraid because Jesus is the author of life. He holds our lives in his hand. Jesus is greater than death. And so seven ways that Jesus is greater than, even separate from the Solomon account, Jesus is greater than this world's water, the best satisfaction this world can offer. Jesus is greater than any preacher, our idea of service, our guilt, our perceptions of God, our enemy, and he's greater than death. He really is greater than Solomon in, in so many ways. And so how should we respond to this? Turn with me to, to Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. Matthew 12, 42. Let's look at this verse again. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. So she came from the ends of the earth, but I can't leave my bed. I hit the snooze button a thousand times, but she came from the ends of the earth. She came from the ends of the earth, but I can't go to church because my, my first attempt at a ride fell through. Or my family was like, what do you think? Should we skip it this week? And, and, and how hard would I have worked to try and get a ride to a party? But I, I can't go to church, but she came from the ends of the earth. Jesus says here that I will be judged for my laziness. And the queen of the south is going to be one of those saying, man, I came to hear Solomon, and you're lazy with Jesus? Are you kidding me? Jesus says that people are actually going to be shocked at my lack of passion to overcome small obstacles to seek him. People are going to be shocked by it. It's going to blow their mind. They're like, Jesus, I don't get this. I don't get this guy. He's got an entire Bible in his language. I had to go to the synagogue. I had to go to the church and, and be taught it from somebody else. He's got his whole Bible. He's got 10 Bibles. He throws away Bibles when he marks them the wrong way. And he doesn't read it. People are going to be shocked at my laziness. So how should we pursue God? We don't want that to be said of us. We want the Queen of Sheba when we get to heaven and she stands up. We want, we want her to kind of walk past us and, be, and then pass us. <laughs> Oh, good. It's not me. She's pointing the figure at. How do we search for God? How do we seek God passionately? Jesus tells us in two parables. If you flip ahead to Matthew 13, just one chapter, Matthew 13, 44, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. If the kingdom of heaven is really valuable to us, we should be willing to give up everything else in life. 
You know what one of the greatest reasons for, for you guys is going to be for backsliding, for walking away from God? It's going to be because you're unwilling to give something up for Jesus. And I'll tell you specifically what it is right now. You're going to be unwilling to give up your cool friends for Jesus. You're going to say, I just got to make it work. I'm going to make it work. Even though all my friends don't love the Lord, I'm going to make it work. And I'm still going to try and be a Christian. And eventually you're not going to try anymore. Eventually you're going to say, you know what? I'm just going to walk away from God for a season and hang with my friends. I'm not ready to give them up yet. I'd rather have my friends who rebel against my Savior, the same ones who would have spit on him as he's walking up to be crucified, those same exact ones, I'd rather have them than my Savior. And because you're not willing to give it up. Now, I know it's hard to give up friendships and relationships when you're your age. I get that. I know I've felt that peer pressure. I've, I've had that. When I gave my life back to the Lord in college, clear as anything, I knew that it would result, and I don't know why I knew this, I knew it would be four months of loneliness. I just did the math, people. I knew it would probably take me about four months to find some good Christian friends. And so after two years of walking away from God, all of my friends are just, you know, drinking, you know, smoking pot, you know, doing drugs and everything. Those are my friends. That's all I got. I haven't gone to the Christian meetings. I stopped going to church. When God finally said, are you going to be miserable for the rest of your life? Or are you willing to turn to me? And when I said to him, you know, it's going to be lonely, though. It's just going to be me and you because I have no Christian friends. He said, is it worth it? Am I greater than that? And it finally came to the point where I said, I'd rather be miserable for four months and then eventually knowing that I'll have a joy again in the Lord. But man, I walked away from him for two years and was miserable. Shouldn't it take at least four months for me to walk back to him? And I made that effort and stopped drinking, stopped going to the bars, and just sat home alone, to be honest, and started going to the Christian clubs. But I'm the outsider who wasn't there for the past two years. And thank God they were kind and generous and, you know, became my friends. I was like a pathetic, like the most pathetic little dweeb you could ever imagine where I was like sitting down. And all I was thinking is, oh, I hope I make a friend today. I want to make a friend today. You know, it's like the fourth, the, the four-year-old who's going to school, and the parents are like, did you make any friends? <laughs> you know, it's like, that, I, I swear that was me. I was sitting there, and somebody would be like, hi, how you doing? I'd be like, hi, yeah, hi, my name is Andy, and I grew up in New Jersey, and I played on the basketball team, but I quit, you know, but it's not because I'm a quitter. It's just, you know, but I, I love the Bible. Too much? Too much? Too fast? Yeah. That's, that's what it was, but it was worth it. It was worth giving up any of that to gain Christ. And many of you in this room are going to walk away from your loving Savior who wants to give you greater things than this world could ever offer because you're unwilling to end certain friendships and certain relationships that are destroying your faith. And that's sad because Jesus is greater than that. Jesus even said, do you not think that I came to bring peace on the earth? I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's not saying to hate your parents. You're like, finally a verse to hate my parents. It'll be memorized by midnight. <laughs> not what it's saying. It's saying your love for Jesus should be so great that if somebody were to describe your first love of Jesus and your second love of maybe your family, the distance between them would be so great that you could almost say it's love and hate. That's what he's saying. Not that you should really hate your parents, but the distance in the love is so great that there should be a different word for it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? God must increase, but we must decrease. And so if you've got this problem tonight where Jesus isn't great enough, the world's obstacles are greater, 
the world's temptations are greater. And you, you don't have a, a vision problem, so to speak. It's not that your eyesight is bad. I remember I, I was stubborn with my eyes. All my sisters had glasses. You know, they all had glasses, but I tried to pretend like I didn't need glasses, mostly just so that they would think that I was better than them. Just like a brother or sister kind of thing. You know, pull their hair, I'm better than you. At least I don't have glasses. <laughs> Idiot. And so, but I really couldn't see a thing. And so I remember one day I finally got glasses, and I put them on, and I'll tell you what, do you know trees are beautiful? I don't know if you knew this. Like my whole life, it was, just, it was like a brown thing with a blurry green top. I put glasses on. I could see every like, little leaf, and I was sitting there going like this for an hour. It's just so beautiful. The world is beautiful. You know, and I was going through. I had a vision problem, right? You don't have a vision problem if you don't see Jesus as greater than the things of this world. You know, you see it tonight. You've heard it tonight. There's no problem with understanding that academically. Your problem is that you don't have a willing heart. It's not a vision problem because you've at least seen it through these scriptures. Scriptures. You've got a stubborn and unwilling heart and you're going to miss out on what God has for you. You must be willing to walk with God. Can two walk together unless they're agreed? You need to say, hey, we're both going to walk in this direction. God's like, I'm going this way. And are you going to walk with him or not? Well, I don't, I don't see you as greater than my friends, so I'm going, to, I'm going to let go. You go that way. I'm going to hang back here with my friends because they're greater than you, Jesus. You're like, well, I wouldn't say that to Jesus, but you are. If he knows your thoughts, then you are saying it to him. You might not say it out loud and say, I choose my friends over Jesus. You'll rephrase it a thousand different times in your mind. I choose this addiction over Jesus. I choose this temptation over Jesus. You know, I choose this worldly pleasure over Jesus. You're not going to say it out loud, but if he knows your thoughts, then he knows that he's, he's going to be hurt by it. He, he knows that you're choosing them over him. You've got to be willing to walk with God. The queen of Sheba heard enough to take a step towards Jerusalem. She, she knew enough. She goes, this is Solomon. It can't be real, can it? Is it really real? Is Solomon really greater than me? And she heard enough where she said, you know what? And she started out towards Jerusalem. She started that journey. Abraham knew that he heard God, so he began his journey. He heard enough. You know, maybe, maybe tonight your vision for God has increased. Maybe you start, maybe you're realizing, man, it, it is a problem of greatness. I think that these sins are more beautiful than Jesus. It's a problem of beauty. It's a problem of greatness. And if that's what you've realized tonight, you know what? Then God's preparing you. He's preparing to do something great in your life. Because if you're going to be willing finally to choose the greatness of that, all that God has over the weak little things that this world has to offer, you guys would crack up over the things that Abigail would want to do versus what we want to do with her. You know, we want to take her to Sesame Place to see all of her, like, favorite little creatures, right? You know, but she'd rather just sit there and play with the mud, play with the grass. And we're like, we got to go. And she's like, no! She'll say it to us whenever we want to take her anywhere. No! So you don't even know what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to give you ice cream without mommy knowing. No! You don't, even, you don't even know the greatness of what I'm trying to do right now. And we act like that sometimes. You know, we serve a great God. He's got great ministry for you, and he's got great pleasure for you. He really wants to give you fullness of joy. Stop playing around with stupid things. Be willing to put them away. Is it worth four months of loneliness for you? You know, for the Queen of Sheba, she knew she had heard enough to go figure it out and was true for her. It'll be even more true for you if you put those things aside whether it's an addiction or whatever it is. God is greater than, than you cutting. God is greater than your you know, addiction. God is greater than the sexual desires that you have. 
You know, God is greater than your need for fame and popularity. God's greater than your need for even just basic friendship. God's greater than all of those things if you would just take the first step. Are you willing to leave your comfortable, cozy, little selfish world and say, you know what, this world's really not all about me. God has something greater for me. Are you willing to overcome the obstacles of leaving your friends, being made fun of, setting your priorities in straight, waking up earlier, whatever it takes? Do you want to be the one the Queen of Sheba looks at and says, this little punk right here, he wouldn't follow you, Jesus. I followed, I went after Solomon and he wouldn't follow you. You're out of your mind. You don't want the Queen of Sheba pointing at you in heaven, judging you, saying you're lazy. People shocked at your laziness. You know, that, you don't want that to be you. God is greater than any of these distractions and os- obstacles. So be willing to leave your own castle, your own comfort zone for what God has for you. Father, I just pray that you would author and inspire a willing heart in all of the students here tonight. Lord, we need it. We're so selfish. It's ridiculous. Father, it's ridiculous how selfish we are. We think we know what we want out of life. We say, oh, oh Lord, this would be great if I could live my life like this. If I could just have this amount of friends, this amount of money, then I'd really be happy. Lord, we don't know anything. It's foolish. We think we know what pleasure is. We have no idea what pleasure is, Lord. You have great things in plan and store for those that want to walk with you. So, Lord, I pray that you would author the faith in every single student here to overcome any obstacle, whatever it is, and I have a feeling they know what that obstacle is, what that temptation is, what that distraction is. Help them to overcome it, to walk after you because you are greater. And Lord, you have so many great things planned for them. So Lord, you do that work because we're selfish little punks. And yet when you start working in our lives, amazing things can happen. And people will be blown away that even you could even use people like us to serve you. And happy are your servants, Lord. And so we love you, Lord. I just pray a blessing upon this youth group and every single student that you would just give them your favor as they seek you, as they abide in you. I know you'll give them favor and you'll give them joy and blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.